think we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone here. It's lovely to see some of your faces. If everybody else could turn their cameras on, that would be lovely. Greet the new year with your beautiful faces in this congregation. Uh, So the title of today's sermon is What's Good, right? So the definition uh, has been contextualized. So changed around, shifted with every century and actually I think with every year and specifically thinking about our time and what has happened in the last 12, almost 12 months now, uh, I think we begin to redefine good. But before we jump in, I'd like to pray um, for our time, if that's all right. So please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask for your mercy as we look into uh, several passages in your scripture. We ask for humility to understand and further humility to apply these things in our lives. We ask for simple reminders that we can hold on to at the beginning of this year. And may these simple reminders continue and intermingle and intertwine with our daily lives Let us be attentive to one another and to our communities and to our families uh, today and tomorrow and forever. We thank you for the opportunity to gather over Zoom and we continue to ask for your provision and protection over those who are uh, serving in the front lines. May the protection of a vaccine or other measures come quickly And when things do return to a new normal, we pray that uh, the lessons that we've learned through this time would stay with us forever. Be with us in the next hour. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so like I introduced a few minutes ago, the definition of good has been reinterpreted and contextualized throughout history. Humans define good through the language of religion, philosophy, ethics, lifestyle. Really, the definition of good is very hard to define in just a few words. But with every century, we've come to the conclusion that the definition of good just relates to where we are, so our place, our history, and our culture, our economy, and our way of life of a particular group. So like I said already, the definition of good is really contextual and hard to define. As Beatrice read this morning in the book of Micah, the author writes that we already know what is good. And that's a historical reference. So today we're gonna look at two specific examples, both in the Old and in the New Testament, that define what's good for us as we begin the new year. So first let's understand that when, and I'm gonna be using the NLT and the NIV kind of back and forth. When uh, the author Micah writes, oh people, the Lord has told you what is good. 
the key phrase that stands out is that he has told us or he has shown us as it is in the NIV. When did he show us what is good? Well, that comes in the beginning. In the very beginning, when God created, he saw and said that it was good. Amen. In Genesis 1-4, God created the light and it was good. Next, he created the land and the waters and the seas and said that it was good. The land later produced vegetation and plants and more plants and trees. And God saw that it was good. Then God set lights to guide the earth. And that's what we talked about last week. And God saw the light and that it was good. Next, he created animals, sea creatures, and land creatures. And each of them produced after their kind. And that was good. And then God created humans. And that is one of the most complex descriptions. He created them over time. And even Genesis chapter 2 spends a little bit longer to describe what the creation of humankind was. There was a lot of good happening in the beginning. And the natural response is, right, the good that we see in creation still to this day, the natural response is that we want to give God something in return, right? And that's the whole human, not the human sacrifice, I'm sorry, the animal sacrifice part of it, right, is that we give God um, a part of what we have earned. We want to reciprocate it in any way possible. We desire to pay back in whatever means we can through words of gratitude or acts of kindness. And that's kind of part of our human condition to do something in return for what we have received, especially when we feel like this grace is something that we did not deserve. When Micah wrote the verse, O mortal, you have known what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Right before then, there were a list of questions that the Israelites asked God. They said, God, do you want our sacrifices or our burnt offerings? Something tangible in return for your beneficent love, provision, and protection. What do you want us to do with what you have given us? How do we pay you back? And I think that this is something that we still think about in our 21 in the 21st century because uh in light of the protestant reformation and the judeo-christian religious philosophy and the protestant work ethic all of those things we value we find value in our work and oftentimes the things that we do we evaluate as a reciprocal payment for this common grace of god I don't want to say that the work we do doesn't really matter because it does. And we have a responsibility to do everything with genuine labor and intention. But oftentimes we misinterpret this value of work when we think that through it, we're just giving back to God. More often than not, our limited understanding of God 
often pushes us to ask this question, Lord, what do you require of us? Because we want to be recognized for our good work. We want to do it perfectly. And we think that we are the only ones that can achieve this task. But what does Micah tell us? That the Lord has already told us what is good. He was the first to pronounce, as we saw in Genesis, what is good to describe creation. When we read it, we actually read it both ways, that God created what was good, and then the act of creating was in it of itself good. After creating, in that moment, God did not require anything of the man or the woman, but that they replenish the earth and maintain the created order upon it. So in the beginning, all that God wanted us to do, all that the Lord required of us, was that we would take responsibility and watch over and watch over and care for creation and walk upon the earth with one another. Along with other things that we often misinterpret, the definition of subduing the earth is often misinterpreted as we are given the authority to dictate the order of the earth in almost a tyrannical way. However, in the Hebrew, it's translated as to tread with our feet. To subdue means to tread with our feet, meaning to walk. So after God created everything, he told humankind to walk upon the earth and care for every living creature in it. How do we do that more practically? Well, that's where when Micah stepped in a few thousand years later. We must do it correctly, to do it rightly, to act justly. So I am starting to tangle us in a little bit deeper and bringing in the Luke passage, but I think we can untangle ourselves eventually. So in the story of Luke chapter 18, the parable that Jesus brings up gives us some framework in which we will think about what's doing right, what loving mercy and what walking humbly actually means. So in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we see two contrasting people, right? Oftentimes that is how we define what is right. The way it appears on the outside, right? The decisions we make on a daily basis when we're at work, when we're at school, when we choose to cheat on a test, when we choose not to cheat on a test, that is what we think is doing the right thing, right? Ultimately, righteous living is very much tied to our reputation. What do other people think about us? We define it as not breaking the law, obeying it actually, and living a life that is unblemished. And you can define that any way you want. And how do we show other people that we live a righteous and just life? We build our reputations in the public life. How do other people Think of us. What do other people associate us with? So you know that the Pharisee would have been recognized as an educated elite who has been raised up to know the scriptures, to know what the right thing is, to fast, to pray publicly, to go uh, to the sanctuary, 
and dedicate specific hours of the day to also contribute, right, to give 10% of his earnings. The Pharisee would have been reared up to, uh, to become that reputable person in society. On the other hand, the tax collector would have been on purpose, with intention, going against what is right, right? Stealing from other people, lying, cheating, choosing intentionally to live in this kind of way. He would have been the outlier in Jewish society, the thief, the criminal, and it would be publicly evident. But at the end of Jesus's parable, the tax collector goes home justified. So how do we redefine what is right through this parable? It definitely complicates things a little bit. Perhaps because our righteousness is not so much tied to our professional or reputational recognition. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day about the decision that we make between two variable options. Choosing what's right doesn't mean choosing what's less comfortable or less preferable or perhaps um, choosing away from what's lucratively wrong. It seems that the Bible actually dives a little bit deeper than the surface of our understanding and suggests that doing right is a state of being. It's not the experience of a given moment. What if to do what is right means to live a life that has absolutely no um, relation to your reputation, but has everything to do with recognizing that the decisions you make and the choices you have are choices you make with God. Let's pay attention a little bit to this passage and look at what the Pharisee is doing to understand and then look at what the tax collector is also doing. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, slightly isolated. He addresses God. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Immediately, the Pharisee begins to compare himself to other people. And he even goes into telling God who the other people is, as if God wouldn't have known that robbers, evildoers, and adulterers were the outcasts of that society, were the bad guys, were, with, were intentionally living a bad life. And in his prayer, he pays attention to the other person in the sanctuary and says, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This is that part where we think that we owe God something, right? And that's what the Pharisee is thinking. The Pharisee compares himself to other people who would have been considered lower in moral status to him. He tells God exactly what he does, believing that that is what God requires of him. But what does God require of us? Jesus showed, tells that to us plainly through the tax collector. 
but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He has not done anything to deserve the benevolent recognition, the benevolent grace, the love. So all he can do is ask for mercy, knowing that he has nothing else to offer. And what does Jesus say? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, went home with right standing before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're kind of pushing the translation of justification and justice and righteousness as we see in Micah. But I do want to focus on the fact that doing what is right extends beyond making the right decisions, extends beyond choosing between what is right and wrong. Before we do anything that is right, we have to be like the tax collector and acknowledge that this righteousness, this right living only comes from God. No matter how hard we try to do good, to be just, eventually we do get tired. We start calculating like the Pharisee. We give up even. And sometimes we don't even try to do good because we don't see the point of it. But what if we just came to God and asked for mercy? And in the next slide, the next point that Mike makes is to love this mercy. The definition of mercy, according to Google, is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. When the tax collector prays to God and says, have mercy on me, I know I deserve to be judged not only by society, but by you. But I ask for mercy. When we look at the story, we know that the tax collector has absolutely no right technically to even, or culturally speaking, he has no right to stand in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. But he calls out and says, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. He knows that he is completely removed from the right to stand before the holy place and petition his supplication. So instead, he just asks for mercy. As I was writing this, I had to be pretty honest with myself. As an educated, employed person, I am a little bit closer to the Pharisee than I am to the tax collector. I have good reputable standing and I'm respected to some degree among my friends, peers, or colleagues. Many of us here today hold a religious identity of being Christian. And with all of these titles, are we not hiding 
our deep desire and need for mercy of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And with this knowledge and richness of knowledge that we have about what grace is and what benevolent love is, do we love mercy or do we just mistake it with luck? When someone who clearly does not deserve something that has been given to them or forgiven them, are we upset? Do we respond with hatred, disdain, mistrust, judgment? That person clearly did not deserve what they got. To love mercy means to see the life of another as worthy of mercy, as worthy of forgiveness. It also means listening to those closest to us with so much sincerity and understanding that it's almost impossible for us to imagine anything else, anything dark or demeaning or hating towards the other person. And to love mercy is directly tied to our way of living rightly or acting justly. We should not become blinded to the humanity and dignity of other people for the sake of fighting for justice, fighting for justice without reason. If we do want to uphold justice and righteousness, but if we pronounce words of hatred or acts of violence towards another person, we are not fulfilling the second part of what the Lord requires of us. And that is to love mercy. And in a way, we're also not really just anymore. To love mercy means to love other people, every other person. It doesn't matter what they have done or what they will do. Likewise, to act justly means to address issues that we have with other people, to resolve and to forgive. We can't hold a grudge against others if we are to fulfill what we are called to do. And as Jesus did talk about it in other gospels, we are called to forgive without counting every forgiveness. And the last part is to walk humbly. And this is what Jesus ends with in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So after we've, or as we live rightly and love mercy, we cannot exalt ourselves and say, we're doing the right thing, living a good life. Because at the foundation, at the foundation of it all, we are to walk humbly. What does walking or subduing as we already saw imply? It implies a steadiness in our life, a steadiness, a rhythm in which we can look around and notice people and places. As we walk, we choose to pass certain areas and look away. 
But what if we stopped and looked to understand and maybe get involved? In those moments, we do what is right because this is what's natural to us. We become attentive to the glimpses of mercy that are revealed in the process. And then we continue walking in, that, in, the, in the next direction. And we look up instead of looking down. But sometimes pride takes over and there is a bump in the road and we stumble. Walking humbly also means looking down occasionally. We look up towards justice and mercy. We also have to look down to see that we are incapable of achieving everything, uh, whether it's in our homes, in our communities, in our society by ourselves. And this is the most interesting part, that we walk humbly with our God. As we walk, we walk with God. As we subdue and maintain the earth, we walk with God. We walk with our feet, but we walk with God. And we fulfill what the Lord requires of us to act justly with God, to love mercy with our God, and to walk humbly as Christ walked humbly. So this is the same God who created the universe, who created humankind in his image and after their likeness. This is God who walks among us, who walked in the Garden of Eden when the man and the woman attempted to hide. God who created us walked with us and continues to accompany us, allowing us to sense both justice and a love for mercy. But the third part of it, like I've already said, is that we walk humbly through it all because often when we, be, we begin to feel that what we're doing is right, like the Pharisee, and that we are merciful towards uh, our neighbors, we lose a sense of humility and can begin to consider our own competence, our own ability to do good. So how do we fulfill all three if this is what the Lord requires of us? What is humility? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is the complete opposite of sensing any sort of accomplishment over any good work. So then how do we do good? We do it only with him and we cry out for mercy as we have already received it. But the problem is, is that sin marks the good creation as dependent on God, the ultimate good. But you know what? As we look into the spring, 
the sin doesn't control us anymore, right? Because of Jesus. So if Jesus' sacrifice and redemption on the cross was the ultimate good, what Micah wrote in the Old Testament became true through the life of Christ. We were not only told of what is good, but we continue to read about it and see reminders of it in our daily lives, hopefully. Now, if we believe that Jesus accomplished this tremendous sacrifice, what do we do? What do we give back for the lamb who was slain and who was resurrected? Same thing. We act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly as Jesus did. We continue to read the scriptures to understand the actions of God. We love forgiveness. And more than that, we are first to forgive someone if they have wronged us. We walk as Jesus walked. He walked a lot. And he looked up to see where the hurt and the brokenness and the sadness overwhelmed those on his path. We are capable of doing some good today and we are required to do it. However, the good that we do should not be perceived as the agency of our own ability. We preach action and active participation in our community, but we cannot deny the fact that at the end of the day, all of this is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We depend on God who is with us and through us and through the process. So ultimately what's good or rather who is good? Jesus who walks beside us. He acts justly and he loves mercy. Jesus, who comprehends paradoxes that we cannot fathom, who brings justice to those who break the law, but also forgives those same people. Sometimes that's a little bit harder for us. And I guess this is where the likeness part occurs, right? That although we are kind of like God, made in his image, we are called to do good. We are not God. We cannot fully comprehend the juxtaposition of administering justice against the lawbreaker, but also at the same time having compassion and love for the perpetrator. What do we do? We walk humbly and accept our portion as humans. We accept that we depend on Jesus and and, um, we we depend on Jesus to do that part to balance and fulfill that which we cannot understand. So in conclusion, as we define good with every new season, and who knows how we'll define it in 2021, let's pay attention to see if our neighbors or even strangers are struggling. And let's not reserve ourselves from lending a hand, from helping. And maybe this is a little bit idealistic to assume that other people need our help or assistance, but in some ways, 
the worst part would be is if we were in their situation and no one asked us if we were doing okay. Sometimes we do know, but some, oftentimes we don't really know how lonely it, it feels for someone to stand at a distance. So maybe like tax collectors, we should, be, we should learn to be brief in our supplication to God, asking for his mercy that will open our eyes and move our feet to do what is right without reservation. And I want to begin part of the benediction right now. May you remember and memorialize the things that God has done in your life. May the Lord call to mind, even in this moment, his provision in your life. Whether they're momentary or eternal, may these things lead to deeper love and faith in him. May the Holy Spirit challenge you to find a way to remember God's acts of love and grace and power in your life so that you will be reminded constantly of not only what he has done, but who God has proven himself to be. As the Israelites stack stones to mark God's faithfulness, may you create ways to not only remind yourself of God's works, but to also pass on the stories of those who need to hear it, to hear the truth, of God, they reveal. As we go into the last song, take time to reflect on this year, all its ups and downs. May God meet you in that time and help you grow closer to him through it all. That's it. We can go to the worship now.